Hey everyone, this is Dan with the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Uh, sitting out here in my wood shop and uh, playing Geppetto on a big project I got going on and needed to sit down and do a little introduction for the uh, next podcast episode. Uh, this is going to be a bonus episode. I just feel like putting it out and uh, got some guests coming and what the hell, right? Uh, you know, when Sean D. came in a month or so ago and, and uh, spoke on the podcast and shared his story a couple of days later, he contacted me and asked me, uh, told me that his friend was looking for speakers at the, uh, at the Women's Healing Place in Louisville. Uh, when, uh, when, when AA asks, uh, I try my best to say yes and uh, contacted the gal and, and set it up. And of course, I think it's going to be quick. And it was, you know, the next opening was like a month away. Uh, little, you know, get excited and find out it's going to be a little while away, and come down off of that. And uh, you know, Big Book tells us we uh, when we wake in the morning, we look at the 24 hours ahead. Well, I also look at the next 48 and 72 hours ahead. Sometimes see what jobs are coming up, make sure I'm not missing anything. See if anybody's celebrating any sobriety birthdays. See what's going on, and uh, saw that I was speaking on uh, Monday, February the 8th. So, uh, gave the gal a text, shot her a text, make sure it was all still kosher, and uh, she replied affirmative. And Monday afternoon, I rolled out of here heading over to the women's healing place. Didn't have any idea where I'm going. I've not been there before. Uh, relying on my navigation, and it wasn't anywhere where I thought I was going to be going, my, just like usual. And uh, what the things I set up in my mind are so often wrong that. Uh, uh, just, just, just almost assume that's what's going to be, and uh, roll up in there, and it's completely deserted. There's not a car in the parking lot. Uh, I pull in and park, and go up to the front door, and somebody inside doors are locked. You got to go in the south exit or something, and I, I didn't have my compass on me, and uh, she pointed around the corner, so I walked around the corner, and when I got around there, it looked like what I'd hoped it looked like. You know, cars in the parking lot, activity, people and uh rolled up in there the uh oh this is for sure me uh and and i'd have to think uh you guys out there feel the same way uh when i walk into like a a completely dominated female environment uh i'm humbled (laughs) you know uh i'm on my best behavior (laughs) uh not that I wouldn't be anyway, right? But there's definitely some energy in that of being, you know, all alone, so to speak. And um, there's a gal in there, and uh, she's going to need to take my temperature. So I sign in on the piece of paper, and uh, she says, uh, Is that you that smells like that? And, of course, I don't know if I'm, I'm hoping that means I smell good. Uh, and and she kind of tapped her chest like her heart was fluttering or something, you know, and was teasing and flirting with me and uh it was my i i uh use this beard oil that i am in love with i've had so many compliments on it and uh i was tempted to tell y'all where i get it at but i'm not going to because uh i'm gonna hoard it up for myself uh, y'all might know if you've listened to this podcast uh, enough that i might have said it at some point but anyway um that was a nice way to enter and uh she took my temperature and uh some gal you know i told him i said i don't i don't know where i'm going and she goes okay and there's a girl standing there and she said i'll take him and uh that lady would take my temperature she said oh no you won't (laughs) and i seen her scanning the crowd there and uh she picked out somebody i don't even know what she said but you know she said uh allison you take him back there and i was like well huh i wonder what she just saved me from um but I'll tell you what, walking down that hallway and, uh, you know, I always got butterflies in my stomach when I start, when I do a podcast or when I speak or, you know, anything like that. And, uh, but boy, they were on, uh, full force last night. Uh, I don't think I've ever been so, uh, so nervous and, uh, walk in there, you know, and of course every head turns and looks at you cause you, you know, it's, uh. They're just not expecting to see some dude walk in. It's a women's recovery center. Um, and I'm sure from a speaker standpoint, they probably are. I mean, it's not like I'm the only one that's ever been there or something like that. But uh, I think you understand the energy. 
So I walk in and the girl's up behind the podium and, you know, golly, I got to talk to somebody. I'll just stand there with my hands in my pocket, uh, stare at my phone. And I walked up and introduced myself and uh, had a little chat, you know. And It was a very nice, very nice evening. I enjoyed it. Uh, I think they enjoyed it too. And, uh, you know, get this opportunity to have this podcast and trying to come up with creative ways to, to, to make content. And uh, I do, you know, I do like to have a little variety. I know it's, for the most part, the, the mainstay is the uh, interviews of people's stories. Uh, and, and I do, I want to I want to keep it that way, or at least that's the way I feel at the moment. But I, uh, Holly bought me a lav mic. It's like a lapel mic for my iPhone. So uh, it makes me a little bit more portable. Matter of fact, I'm using it right now. And uh, it's better than just speaking into the to the to the phone. And I can also tuck my phone in my pocket, or I just got two. It'll hook up with two mics, so I could actually take it and do an interview someplace, and I have to lug out my my notebook computer and a big boom mics and all that business. Not that that's a lot, but it's a bit. Uh, so I could do that. And uh, so I thought, hell, man, I'm gonna mic myself up. So I did, and I stuffed my phone in my pocket, and I had a black shirt on. I doubt anybody had any idea I had a mic uh, attached to my lapel. Uh, I don't feel, I talked to my sponsor about it, uh, as long as anybody else's voices, and you can hear the, just a little bit, the beginning and the end, but of the gal saying, I'll give you Dan, and uh, saying good job as we passed, and I did have more recorded, the readings and all that, but I'm not, you know, A, I won't bore you with the readings at the beginning and end of meetings. And B, uh, it's not cool to be uh, broadcasting people without their without their permission. So when I got home, I edited it up down to just my part. So it's an honor to get to ask to do that. I may start doing a little more, and maybe when my buddies uh, are speaking. Um, work with them to get them mic'd up so uh, I can turn their their talks into podcasts too and just continue to try to mix up the content and uh, provide you with uh, quality recovery listening. It's important to me when I was early. uh, Pour a lot of inspirational hope and that kind of thing into my into my brain and uh, brainwash me, get that old thinking out and uh, replace it with some more, so with some new healthier thinking. So with that, I enjoyed it. Uh, thank you, Sean, for uh, inviting me and hooking me up in that particular thing, allowing me to participate in my recovery in that manner last night. And um, it was a, it really was a pleasure. It juices me up. I love to do it. Uh, I feel like I'm good at it. Uh, My story definitely touches some people, so uh, that's why God gave it to me is to uh, give it away, right? So with that, I will uh, let you hear uh, my talk at the Women's Healing Place in Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you all for allowing me to participate in my recovery in this manner today. And... uh, Peace out. All right, and without taking up any more of the time, I give you a dance. Hi, everyone. My name is Dan Reeves, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. Hi, Dan. Uh, I was just walking down the hall, and I said, uh, I have never been more nervous talking than I am tonight. Uh, hopefully that'll, that'll ease in just a minute. Uh, I have a sobriety date is January the 1st of 2015. It means uh, last month I celebrated six years of continuous sobriety. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, home group, I'm in a part of a men's group. Uh, it's called the Spiritual Underground. And uh, it meets on Tuesday nights and is definitely the anchor of my life and my recovery. I do not miss a home group meeting. In, it's got to be something awful important. Uh, hell, nowadays with the Zoom stuff, you know, there's really no excuse to miss it at all because you almost always got some service someplace. Um, I was brought up, I was born and raised in New Albany, Indiana. Uh, never have lived anywhere else. 
of probably I think in three different houses altogether, something like that. Um, I can't lay this disease thing at the feet of my parents. Uh, I probably had everything, well, you know, there's a saying around here that says, uh, had everything I needed and most of what I wanted or something like that. And uh, so that wasn't, you know, I had everything at my disposal that I could possibly want. And uh, as we know, this thing doesn't care. It does not care. Um, you know, we, there, I, do, I do a podcast. I have a recovery podcast. I host it. I put it out every uh, Sunday morning where I interview people just like you, our regular folks from around here, and uh, sit down and talk to them and have them tell their their amazing story you know and a couple times i've had people come in and kind of surprise me where they had a relapse lately you know so it's not just about long-term recovery although uh that is seems to be where we set our sights on uh, but there's things i call bell ringers where people say the same thing over and over again as they come in there and set it down into this table uh certain phrases come all the time like i never did feel comfortable in my own skin uh never felt like i could fit in uh, those are two that I can relate to right off, and that's the way I felt since I was a kid. Um, I felt like I needed to watch the other people. Oh, okay, thank you. You scared me when you pointed down. I thought my zipper was undone. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. I thought, oh, shit. Uh, Yeah, where was I? <laughs> I was a kid. And, uh, you know, so I started watching other people to try to figure out how to act. I think that's just natural, right? So when you see people doing things, and, you know, there seemed to be that there were certain kids that was cool, and, uh, and there were certain ones that weren't. And I tried to watch the ones that I wanted to emulate and do what they did. Uh, that turned out to be, you know, my, my perception of who was cool wasn't quite in line probably with what ought to be. And uh, so I just carried that on through my life. So when my friends who I thought were cool said, hey, man, you want to smoke a joint? I said yes. I had no idea. I, you know, it blows me away now to think that that was the thing that started me down the path that ended up. Now, you know, there's two ways to look at that, though, because the other way, my life could not be any better today. And had I not traveled that journey, I wouldn't be where I am right now. Uh, but, you know, I heard another speaker say, you know, it wouldn't have made any difference what them guys said. Uh, if they said, let's go kill the Spanish teacher, I'd have said, okay. It wouldn't have made any difference. I was going to do what they did so that I could feel like I was fitting in with my buddies, with these guys I admired. Uh, same thing happened when I had my first drink, and I'm really not square on which one I had first, because it all come down about the same time. And another bell ringer item is, is it seems like most people walk into my podcast, and when I ask them when they had their first, when they used first or drank first, is someplace around 13, 14 years old. And that's how old I was. And it was a snow day. We're supposed to get some weather, right? Uh, it was a snow day, and my parents worked, and a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, Dan. Your mom and dad's working today, right? And I said, yep. And he said, how about we get some beer and drink it over at your house? And I said, sure. You know, I didn't have any idea. We sat around a table, and actually, over time, what's happened, I actually bought my parents' home 12 years ago. And, uh, and I still own it. And the dining room table we sat and drank beer at is still the same dining room table in the same room. And we sit there, and what I look at now was I sit there and played adult while whatever 13 14 year old boys sat on a snow day and drank beer and i also set a new you know a pattern that day that i carried on throughout my using is i quickly overshot the mark because it seemed i remember it being fun for a few minutes and i liked that feeling that it gave me uh, but the next thing i remember was my mom waking me up and i was in my bed uh, my buddies did do a good job of cleaning up behind me. I found out later on that I'd throwed up all over the place, and they put me in the shower and showered me off and cleaned up the house and, uh, and went home. And uh, nobody knew anything about what happened that day except for us. It's another thing that I uh, carried on. I have this uh, habit of overshooting the mark. Uh, going to concerts, you know, they had to wake me up at the end of it to get me to leave. Uh, <laughs> Nobody knows where I'm at, and they find me asleep back in some bedroom in the house. Uh, I just, I had trouble uh, keeping up with everybody. 
I remember that next morning or that night too of uh, how bad I felt that hangover. I felt horrible and I probably didn't drink. I mean, I don't, my buddy, I, I remember my buddy was on a moped and two of us were at my house, Kurt and Tracy. And Tracy was one of them guys that looked like he was 20 when he was 12, you know, full beard in the eighth grade. And uh, he come down the street and it's kind of a little bit downhill and he's on his moped and he's got what I think was two boxes of Little Kings in his lap. And when he tried to make the turn to go up my driveway, which was just a slight, he's coming downhill and then has to make that turn uphill. A lot of snow on the ground. He crashed the moped down at the bottom of the hill. And I do remember that we ran down there and made sure the beer was safe. We got that straight right off. How we knew that, how we knew that at that age, I don't know. Uh, but we did that, picked him up, picked up his uh, moped and, and commenced to uh, our day. I remember that hangover, and I remember words that I would repeat over and over again from that point too. I ain't never doing that again. Didn't take too long, and I really don't, you know, I say this other thing, you know, if I knew I was going to be telling this story, I'd have kept better track. Because I've tried to lay out like a chronology of how things happened, and it doesn't work. It won't patch up and, and, and go in order. Uh, but I do recall that any chance I had from that point forward to uh, get high or drink, I took it. And, of course, at that age, you know, you can't do that real often. You, you know, 12-year-olds can't go to the store. However, 15-year-olds can't go in and buy liquor. So I remember we would sit outside the liquor stores and offer people money to pick us, to buy us stuff. And then, of course, we, uh, how we did this, I have no idea. A couple of them, looking back, probably were pretty scary individuals, uh, that we were dealing with to go to get us liquor and get us stuff. But somehow or another, we, we were able to do it. And uh, I re- looking back too, that uh, I had a friend when he was 16 years old that, that drank real hard at 16. His dad was an alcoholic and his name was John. And uh, I remember one day I went to school and they said, have you heard? And I said, no, what? what? And he said, uh, John shot himself last night and he killed himself. And uh, what I know about this disease today, it took him that early. And then when I was about 20, I had another friend who uh, went behind his house and he started a family early and he did the same thing. He went behind his house, behind the barn and took a pistol and shot himself. And that's two close friends. But back then, I I just thought the guys committed suicide. I didn't know that the disease alcoholism addiction is what got him. truth is that time between then and up to when I was probably in my middle 30s was pretty fun. I stayed out of trouble. I, and I say that, see, and I'll add this too. At 16 years old, I got my first DUI. It was a head-on collision uh, to a bigger vehicle than I was in. Uh, they, everybody was, nobody was hurt. So I had my first AA meeting at 16 years old, and it was court-ordered. And I can't remember, you know, I remember going. Uh, but nothing sank in. So when I actually came into AA in 2011 with what with a third tradition in my pocket where I had a true desire to stop, uh, I don't remember any of what was said. Nothing rang a bell from when I was a kid. I put, the, put my tail feathers out and, and not drink and be good for the period of time that it took to get out of the trouble and to have whatever probation to soak by and all that kind of thing and then, you know, be right back in the old pattern again, you know. And I uh, had another one when I was 19. Uh, I was a pretty good basketball player and uh, played for New Albany High School. And, you know, I, me and a buddy were real good. The same guy who I drank with that first time, Kurt. Uh, we, were, we were twins, man. We were together and we would played ball since we were little. And we were really good together. And uh, we were getting to play varsity. We was, when we were in the ninth grade, we was getting to go up and sit on a high school bench. And when we were uh, junior or sophomores, we were able to sit varsity where most of the other JV players had to put on street clothes and sit behind us. We got to keep a uniform on and sit. So that made me think I was pretty good. And, uh, and I got kicked off a basketball team when I was a sophomore for smoking dope on the bus on the way back home from a away game. I mean, I, I think about how dumb that is today to think that to have any idea that we thought we was going to get away with that. Um, it was three seniors who had scholarships, and they all lost their scholarships. 
and a junior and myself. And out of those five guys that got kicked off that basketball team, three of us are still alive. One I know is really struggling still. And, another, and me and another guy sober. That really lit a fire under me. I was done with uh, trying to be good. Once I got kicked off the ball team, uh, I could use that for an excuse to, to I, I use that for an excuse to just uh, go wild, you know, and really not have any, any hang-ups on trying to hide or trying to try to slow down or try to be good so I could stay on the team or any of that kind of thing. Um, now, well, I say another DUI when I was 19, and I didn't get another DUI until I was 38. I went 19 more years before I got in any trouble whatsoever with my drinking, you know, legal trouble. I get in trouble, I got married, I had a couple kids. Uh, I'd get in trouble with her for my drinking. Uh, I was pretty good at hiding it from her too. You know, and, and drinking was always the mainstay. I had to quit smoking pot after a while because it put me under the table. I already said I struggled with that. And so pot would put me under the table. I had to stop getting high sometime during that time. Um, I liked the stuff that would bring me up you know, some, some cocaine or something like that, some meth, uh, something that would keep me in the party. But I never really did dive into any particular drug real hard until. <laughs> uh, all that was just a, a, like a time warp from the time I got, you know, high school to when all of a sudden I started having a lot of trouble. And what started that trouble was I came home on a Friday and uh, my mom was a chronic, like a hypochondriac. Uh, I don't really know if it was, uh, I, I don't want to put any judgment on it, but she was always having surgeries and she was always having this and she was falling down and she kept a steady supply of pain pills around. Uh, and and it, I was a little oblivious to it really for the longest time. And one day, and, and it had been a little time, and the drinking had stopped working for me. I, well, I just didn't feel good drinking anymore. But I couldn't stop, but I kept on drinking. And, I, you know, I was coming home from work and, uh, you know, have a six-pack in me before I got to Mom and Dad's because they watched my kids. I was lucky to have them. Didn't have to have a babysitter. would go over there. Most time, Mom would feed me on Friday nights after, you know, when I went by. And I remember, I, I recall it plain as day, as I was walking around that house uh, waiting for dinner to be ready. And uh, I went into mom's bedroom and there were two prescription bottles sitting there. And I wandered over and I looked at him and you know, I'm 37, 36 years old, something like that. And I walk over and I look at him and uh, it said, I remember on it, it said for pain. Now I've been hurt a lot when I was a kid and, and I would get, we would get pain medication at the ER and mom will give me a couple of them. And this is all hindsight. Mom will give me a couple of them and then I'd never see the rest. Uh, but that day I looked on there and it said all I saw was on there was for pain and I had pain I was hurting I didn't really know what was going on uh, I thought something was maybe maybe I was sick or something because I couldn't drink anymore uh, so I took and shook I still remember I shook out two big pills out of one bottle and two little pills out of the other bottle and I looked at them for a minute and I throwed the two little ones in my mouth and I swallowed them. And in about 30 minutes, my whole life come back. All that pain I was feeling on the way home from work in the weeks and months or whatever it was before that, whew, gone. Gone. I ate supper with mom and dad. I went home. Me and the kids had a big party all night. Uh, they, they, they were like... Uh, Damn, I should be able to tell that time frame, but like I said, the chronology doesn't work. But they were like, they're two years apart from one another. So they were like four and six or something, or three and five, something like that. I have, I have a pic, one particular picture where we all had do-rags, uh, bandanas tied around our head. And, I, and I, that picture is still sitting around in my record someplace, and I know it's from that night. What those turned out to be was two uh, Oxycontins. Uh, I didn't know what they were. Uh, in hindsight, I probably took the lower tabs the first night and tried that out before I went to the, to the two uh, Oxycontins. But uh, that's not the way it worked out. And at that time, it really didn't make any difference because the next night I took two of those others and I was good again. 
And I thought I'd found a magic key to get back on the horse of what I was, you know, because I really had a good time for a long time. Things went pretty well, and I felt good most of the time. So I started visiting Mom more often. <laughs> uh, that old thing we say around here where you steal your drugs and help you look for them. Yeah. I did that with my mom. She would call me up telling me that her pain pills were missing. and She didn't know what happened. And we would uh, brainstorm on what might have happened to them. It's funny now, man, but it almost makes me cry. Uh, five years ago, yesterday, on Super Bowl Sunday, it was having to be February 7th, my mom passed away. It was basically at, at, as a result of this. She was a professional lady. She was the director of nursing at Ivy Tech over in Sellersburg. Uh, by all appearances, didn't look like anything was wrong with her. And there really wasn't, except for that uh, she took too many pain pills. She had a stroke on the operating table. They didn't know she had that much on board when she went in for one of her many surgeries, and that stroke uh, ended up being like a nine-month decline until she passed. Um, She started locking them up in one of them little medicine lockers, and uh, she would forget to change the combination, and I'd see the combination, and then I was getting in there, and she really couldn't figure out how they were disappearing out of there. But so she was getting a lot. This was this was before the crackdown. So I mean, she's kind of getting as much as she wanted. Now they were locking her down a little bit, but but she was doctor shopping, and she knew because of her position. I think she had some pull where she could get you know people give them to her when they really shouldn't have. Um, but that did end up drying up, and in that time too. So anytime I visited your house, if you had pain pills, you didn't have them when I left. <laughs> Uh, that was aunts, uncles, friends, grandmas. I started talking my way into people's houses I hardly knew just to see if I could find them. Uh, that led to starting to going in houses in what they call, bur- I can't say that word, burglary. <laughs> it's funny I can't say that. It's kind of like when people come in at first and they stutter on the alcohol. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. I can't say burglary. Uh so I started doing that, and just like my mother, in a way, if you look at me, I had 2.3 kids, a beautiful wife. I'd held a job for 20-something years. Uh, I was an engineer, vote power here in Louisville. Um, if you looked at me and if you'd asked me, uh, that guy didn't have a problem. And that's the way I said. A guy that has all this doesn't have a problem. And I like to look at this disease like a parasite or a computer virus. Is something that hijacks my operating system, and I'm not really me. I'm no longer driving the wheel. I don't have it. I'm something that, that's got me. Because down deep, all of us are pure children of God. The spirit, universe, whatever you want to say, I don't really care what you call it, it's just the grunts we make to talk about it. Uh, born pure, born clean, and when they first started talking to me about spiritual sickness, I realized uh, I, come to, I come to look at it this way. Uh, at first, I thought they were telling me I didn't have any religion, that I wasn't practicing a religion enough. Uh, and I wasn't, but I was still offended. What I found and what I believe today is that through the course of, of my growing up, and I think it happened, very few of us escape it, is the spirit gets stepped on by stuff that shouldn't happen to little kids. Stuff happened to me that shouldn't have happened to me. Uh, bullied. Not feeling good enough. Not feeling like I met up to other people's expectations. Hope that wasn't anything bad. <clears throat> and my spirit got stepped on, and that's what makes us sick. So then i got to find something, because I don't feel good about myself. And i got to find something that will make me feel good about myself. And that dope and booze and all that kind of stuff... Uh, really did fill that hole for me for a long time, and I think that's really the root of our thing is the spiritual sickness that we get. Uh, I, I do believe there's some genetic component to it too, um, but that's awful hard to judge completely. Uh, like my mom was an addict, you know, and I turned out being one too. But but you can't put a 
you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Um, so I started uh, breaking in houses and, and getting them. And, and there was an old guy that lived across the street from me. And I told you I moved back into the house I grew up in. So I've known this guy all my entire life. And uh, one day his wife called me and needed help. He was in one of those scoot, one of the motorized scooters, and he'd fell out of it. And he was a big dude. And uh, she needs some help getting him back up in it. So I always have been a pretty helpful dude. I would have prided myself on being helpful. And, uh, and I went over and helped him get back up in there, man. And, and just like a radar, and I don't know how many of y'all can relate to this, man, but I mean, I can read a prescription bottle from 50 yards. <laughs> Almost smell it. And I saw that he had some of what I like. And so I started going over to his house. <laughs> a lot. Uh, I would sneak in his living room. They were hard of hearing. And he'd be pulled up right in front of the TV like this on his motor scooter. And they'd have the TV full blast. And I would walk in the front door. <laughs> slip in there. Get what I want. And slip right back out. I'd walk in there when he was as when they were asleep. After a while, they started locking the door, but they left a key for me out under the brick outside the house. <laughs> it gets my heart beat when I think about this. I walked in there one night real late. I had a new girlfriend. Her little daughter and my daughter sleeping back in my daughter's bedroom. My son's asleep in his room. We're sitting on the couch. I'm drinking a few beers. I told her I really shouldn't be drinking. But I'd had some sober time. Because 2011, I came in and got two, a year, I stayed sober a year. I didn't drink. I still did some other stuff. But I didn't drink. And I came up in front of one of these meetings and got one of them tokens for one year. So I told her I used to be sober and I really shouldn't be drinking, but I think I got a handle on it today. Meanwhile, I'm going over in this guy's house all the time. And I told her, I'll be back in just a minute. And I got up and I went out the back door and I went around the house and I slipped over in there and did my same thing, slipped in that house. The old man would be sleeping in his bedroom, watching with the TV on. He was sitting there watching TV and I would slip in there and open up. The medicine kept on moving. It was like in the kitchen and shit at first, but it started moving back further in where it was getting. So now it's in his dresser drawer. And, and, but I found it. And I slipped in there and I got that handful of them. And I never cleaned him out, you know. I just shake some out. And I turned around to a silhouette standing there that had a baseball bat and pepper spray. And he had that pepper spray about six inches from my face and hit me with that. And then he, we were in a little hallway, and he started at me with the ball bat, but we were too tight quarters for a really get a good swing on me. And, uh, and, and I, I bowled past him and knocked him down, and I shot out of the house. And uh, my house over here, and I ran that way. <laughs> Thing was, that guy knew me because six months earlier, he caught me once before. And that night, I was real drunk. And he got me down on the floor, and he stuck his knee in my back, and he had me pinned, and he's telling this young girl to uh, call 911. And he said, what's your name? And I said, Dan Reeves. And I felt the pressure on my back release. And he said, leave. He's trying to help me. He came over, tried to talk to me a few times, uh, I wouldn't answer the door. He finally went and told my mom and dad. <laughs> Promised I'd get some help. I think I did a little one week in the detox and tried to make another run at it, but wasn't able to hang in there. So now I'm in here again, and he's not quite as nice as last time. And this guy is the son of the old man. Um, man, it makes my heart beat still. I ran around the streets in New Albany that night thinking over and over again, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Thought about killing myself. I was so ashamed. 
by now I'm out in like a little pair of loafers and I have short pants on and that's all because my shirt was completely covered in that pepper spray. I had to ditch it. This girl has no idea where I went. I said, I'll be back in just a minute. <laughs> I kept on coming to my house and I would come, I, you know, it's that neighborhood I grew up in. So I knew it really well. And I would come and I would see and there's cops was outside. And one of them had their headlights painted up the front of the house and one of them had them out the back. And I would back off for a while and come back. And I did that a couple times, and then they were gone. Cops were gone, but my house was lit up like a party was going on in there. And uh, I could see people moving around. So uh, I slipped around the side of the house, and, and I saw two things that surprised me, and I'm not really sure why they surprised me, but it surprised me that that girl's car was there. And it surprised me that my parents' car was there. So I sat down under this pine tree that's in my backyard, still there. I take people to it once in a while and I talk about it. I sat down under this pine tree, man, had my head on my elbows, and, uh, and I heard the back door come open. And I saw my dad standing there, he had two buckets. And he starts down the little stepping stone path that takes you to the garbage can. And man, I sit down trying to be as small as I could possibly be, that he might walk by me and not see me. And when he set those buckets down, I heard they were full of broken glass. And he said, Dan. And I looked up and said, yeah. And he said, are you hurt? Are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay. And next thing I know, I felt him sit down beside me and put his hand on my knee. And these words i never forget. He said, let's go in, get a shower hit the sack, we'll deal with this tomorrow, it's all gonna be okay. I went inside, faced that girlfriend who had uh, tears in her eyes, my mom, she knew this, she knew I was struggling by now. That gig was up on where all pills went, all that stuff. Uh, she knew what was going on. And uh, I got up the next morning, somehow I never went to sleep. It was like three in the morning when I got there. It was about like eight when I left. I uh, got up in the morning, took another shower, got myself ready for work, walked out in the backyard, got underneath that stepping stone where I'd hid them pills last night that was still left, throwed a few of them in my mouth, put the rest in my pocket, headed on my day. That AA book says you can't remember the pain and suffering of weeks or months ago. I couldn't remember the suffering of last night. The whole next bit of it, one thing, I put that girl in my car with my kids and told her to meet me up at the Wendy's so that if I drove by that guy's house, it'd be them in my car, not me. And I drove her car out. The next bit was a big song and dance. You know, I ended up with a warrant out for my arrest. They knew who it was. The detectives came ringing on the doorbells. I had talked to a lawyer, told me not to talk to him. Uh, he said, let's just wait and wait for the warrant to come out. And then it eventually come out. And I listened to my lawyer and I went down and my mom went with me. And uh, I got arraigned and stood in front of that judge in New Albany and he, you know, there's a lot of things you just don't forget. And he stood there and said, uh, sit in the crime you committed uh, sentencing guidelines is 6 to 20 years in Indiana Department of Corrections that didn't sound like a good deal <laughs> they took me down you know and processed me and all that and because I had a little money and mom helped me out with it uh, well, they bailed me out right off and lawyer had all that set up so uh, walked down they did all this song and dance down there for a little bit and he said you can go out that door and I was like I just go out that door and he said yep and I walked out that door and my mom was parked there the lawyer said park right here he'll be out in a little bit so I went through this whole and man the time just doesn't work out but this was in June in 2014 when I broke in that house for the last time and um uh, I was going down there and we was doing this little dance and they wanted me, the whole neighborhood wanted me to go to jail. So they were going down to talk to the prosecutor saying that, they, you know, that guy doesn't make me feel, I don't feel safe in my neighborhood with that guy living here. And um, they come down to like three years or something. And uh, my buddies told me, don't worry about it, you only serve a year and a half. 
uh, over and over again, I said to myself, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I really didn't. A buddy of mine was inviting me to this Tuesday night AA meeting. Uh, from June to my sobriety date on January the 1st, and, and that January 1st accident, I didn't intend to get sober on January 1st, um, I was pretending to be sober. So when I didn't have my kids, I would drink and hide. And when I had my kids or when I was around my parents, I'd pretend like everything was okay. And uh, so even, even with that consequences laying on my shoulders, I still couldn't stop. So uh, a friend of mine at work kept on telling me to come to this meeting with him. And, and I don't know about you, but like anytime somebody brings me something that's working for them, and they say, hey, here, try this, I instantly reject it. You know, it's got to be my idea. If it's your idea, ain't going to work. And it's one thing I found about this 12-step program is I had to turn that over, man, and stop my, my ideas. And the book says it over and over again. you got to give up your old ideas. So finally, I ended up walking in. Uh, I was going to this thing on Tuesday night, this little step study, and it collapsed, and, and I didn't really know what to do. I was, wasn't staying sober going to meetings. And... Uh, so one day at work, I said to this guy, I said, hey, man, was that meeting tonight? And he said, yeah, and I went with him. And there was a man in that room that uh, shared that, uh, I don't know if you all can relate to this either, man, but I heard that dude talk, and I was peeled to him. Everything he said just landed, just went in me. So I started going to that meeting, and this is like November. Uh, and I'm telling them guys everything's Okay. You know, I've told them I've had sobriety. I'm okay. They don't know anything. See, I'm a brand new guy in this new meeting, and I'm walking in like I got some time under my belt. Because I had that year, you know, and I'd been, learned how to talk the talk and, and, and do the stuff that look like sober people do. Remember what I was talking about when I was a little kid, looking at other people, see what they did, do what they do? I could pretend like I was like that. And one night, uh, I would go to uh, court in the morning. They would, and it just... I had to go down there, and they would be these pre-trial conferences, pre-trial conferences. And I would go down there, and I would take the whole day off of work, and uh, I would go down, do that, usually around 9 in the morning. I'd go straight to the liquor store, get as much liquor as I've needed for the day, no more, because I can't have no leftovers sitting around the house. And then go home and get blasted and get obliviated. I could not deal with that, that shame and that remorse. I wasn't taking pills anymore. But I couldn't stop drinking. And one Tuesday, I had a court date. And uh, as crazy as this sounds, it's the truth. They said in this meeting, all men who's willing and able to sponsor a guy through these 12 steps, please raise their hand at the end of that meeting. And I kept waiting for that dude that talked to raise his hand. He never did. He never would. And that Tuesday... I had a fight with myself about, man, if I drink today, I won't go to that meeting. And if I go to that meeting, this will be the night that some bitch raises his hand. If I don't go. And so I didn't, and I sucked that stuff in all day long. And he did a thing called a burning desire. Y'all know what that is. And at that point, in that night, everything come off of me, and, and I wasn't playing sober anymore. Uh, I wasn't hiding. And when they said, do you have a burning desire, I dumped my whole bucket on the floor in front of these men. And told them where I was at. And they did like they do in these rooms, man. They just come around me with a whole bunch of love. Told me things like uh, our experiences that people do these 12 steps and place these principles in their daily life. They don't go to jail. Uh, if you do go to jail, we'll come see you. <laughs> I thought those things, hmm. Um, and I really felt they meant it. And directly after that meeting, that man that I talk about, he made a beeline to me during the fellowship time, and he walked up, and the first words he said, he said, uh, man, I really heard what you shared tonight, and I want to sponsor you. He said, but, do you have a big book? I said, yeah, I got a big book. He says, it got writing and stuff in it? And I said, yeah, it's highlighted, writing, tabbed out. He said, get rid of it and get a new one. He said, are you busy on Tuesday nights after this meeting? Because that's the only time I can meet with somebody. Well, I didn't know, really. My schedule was kind of full. Uh, but I said, yes. And everything he said, I want you to call me tomorrow between 1 and 3 p.m. And I called him at 2. 
because that's exactly between one and three. Now, I had that gift of desperation that I didn't want, you know, the, the consequences weren't something I was willing to go through. I had already kind of planned out that I wasn't going to go to prison. I'd rather take my life. I'd, I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to do that. And to make a, to, 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 I got a few more minutes. Um, I jumped in that dude's hip pocket. And I started doing everything he told me to do. And I started calling him every single day. Man's still my sponsor today. One day he said, why don't you ask him about home incarceration? I said, Christopher, they're not going to do home incarceration. I've already asked him about home incarceration. I said, they won't let me do home incarceration in this house because I was breaking in that house. (laughs) He said, why don't you ask him one more time? I thought, dang it. So... I called my lawyer and asked him one more time, and he laughed at me. And he said, and I said, well, will you just do that? And he said, yeah. The guy called, like a week went by, I hadn't heard from him. And the guy called me and said, uh, hey, they're willing to do that deal, but uh, they're not going to let you stay at your house. There's someplace else you can go. I said, yeah. I didn't know where to go, but... Um, so I talked to my sponsor. Remember I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I now today, when that thought comes across my head, I know exactly what to do. I call my sponsor. And he said, well, we'll get you in a men's recovery place or, you know, we'll do something. But, but you see what God's doing for you here, right? Like we told you, if you start working these steps, things will happen in your life. And there won't be no way to explain them. But just keep on doing it. So I worked out a deal. I was going to move into my mom and dad's house. Back in. I was 45 years old. And uh, served my home incarceration. Uh, it come down to a deal. I was going to do a year on home incarceration, a year on probation. And uh, they, they still held with that three-year sentence. But it's going to be one home incarceration, one probation, other on the shelf, pending successful completion of the other two. And... Um, so I thought that was a pretty good deal, and it turned out to be a really good deal. I walked in my mom's house the weekend before my little sentencing deal, and it was all going to be official, and I was going to bring over and get that bedroom back there ready for me. And, uh, and I walked in the house, and I saw my mom sitting there on her, on her recliner with her chin against her chest, and she'd stopped the pills, or at least she told me she had. And, uh, and I, knew what, I knew right then, and I looked on the table beside her, and I mean, it looks like a mayonnaise jar full of them. And uh, man, I flipped out. I knew there's no way I'm staying sober in that house. There's no fucking way. And I walked out that door that day and I said, and I didn't know what to do, man. And, I, and that ding went off. Yes, you do. Call your sponsor. And I called him and he said, hey, man, you're just going to, uh, you're just going to have to ride this out. We can't go back to the till and tell the judge things have changed. We've got to get you in there, and we'll get you out to a men's recovery house or something like that as quick as we can, but you're just going to have to suck it up for a little bit, bud. So I went down to my, I don't even know the terms, man, but they were, it was a sentencing or whatever where they actually, and they take me back in this little room and have me read over the paperwork and sign it and everything beforehand, and then they march you out in the front and do the official thing where they slam the deal and record it in the court and all that. Well, I went back in that little room, and I'm reading that, and I'm going, uh, Daniel E. Reeves, you are sentenced to uh, one year home incarceration, one year probation, uh, and it was said one year home incarceration to be served at, and in there was uh, my home address, not my parents, and I left a little piece out. One thing my sponsor told me to do, he said, now we're going to have a chance for you to rely on your higher power. And what I thought he meant, uh, what he what I thought he meant is I was going to have to, that I was going to have this opportunity to test my higher power. But what he said is a chance to rely on my higher power. And he said, "Well, I want you to do every morning when you wake up and before you go to bed. I want you to ask, pray for God to help uh, support your recovery." 
And I thought that was mighty weak advice, but I did it. And when I went in there and looked at that court paperwork and it had a different address, had my home address on it, I knew they had made a mistake. And once again, I, I don't even remember the sentencing. My head was spinning on what I was going to do about this. I don't know why I'm so wound up about it. Well, they've made a mistake, and I'm going to have to tell them about it. And uh, I walked out of that courtroom that day. It's the same thing. I don't know what to do. don't know what to do. And I said, uh, Christopher, they fucked it up. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, they put my home address for the home incarceration. And he starts laughing. what he said uh what you been praying for all week and i said for god to support my recovery and i had people in aa tell me this is a program of rigorous honesty that i should go down there and tell them about their mistake my sponsor told me that would be undoing god's work A lot of miracles started happening, so much so that uh, my sponsor recommended that I start a list because that was one of them, that paperwork changing. They were adamant that I wasn't going to do that, home incarceration. That was the whole deal. Not at home. And then I was afraid they'd catch on to it eventually. They never did. I had a little breathalyzer in my house and that ankle bracelet. Uh, they wouldn't let me do anything but go to work and go to recovery. And that's what I did every day. They let me take my kids to point A and point B and, uh, and let me go to work. Uh, my work never found out about it. whole time they didn't find out. Every once in a while I'd be in a meeting and some guy across the table would look at my ankle. <laughs> Have one guy come up and say, what is that? Uh, I travel a lot for work. Used to. I don't have that job anymore. Uh, and they never asked me to travel that whole time and I thought for sure that at some point they'd say Dan we need you to go to here I mean I've been to uh, it sounds like bragging Ireland, Korea, Thailand, Japan been to all these kind of places and uh, we, built, we built a component for power plants and we did when we was doing those uh, I get opportunity to go to those places and never did ask me to go and then uh Right at the end of my probation period, they put me on this special team where we were going to get to go to Japan for like three weeks. And, uh, and I went down and talked to my probation officer and said, uh, hey, you know, here's this opportunity. And they said, she said, no. she said you, you couldn't really leave the three counties right here without getting permission. <laughs> and uh, she said, if you was going to like Tennessee or something, we might be, you know, we'd probably do that. But you can't go out of country. And I said, well, okay. But I didn't know how I was going to, you know, like, what am I going to do now? And uh, we just rode that out, you know, and, and that, that trip kept getting postponed and postponed. And, and I got take, I was off of uh, probation on the 18th of February that year. And uh, I was standing on a mountain in Japan on the 28th of February that year. That timing worked out exactly perfect. And I'd never been freer in my life. Two weeks ago, I had to ask permission to leave the county. And I'm standing on the other side of the world looking down on Nagasaki, Japan, one of the top three nightscapes in the entire world with the sun setting over the Japanese ocean behind me. Uh, got to go to an AA meeting over there. My probation officer ended up being a dear friend. She's made every single one of my sobriety meetings, my sobriety birthday meetings since then. I have a list of uh, miracles that I can barely keep up with since this has happened. My ex-wife decided to go to Florida as soon as I got off of uh, probation, she's going to move down there to a job. And I was pissed because she was going to take the kids with her. And she said, oh, no, I'm leaving them with you. And I was pissed because she's leaving them with me. <laughs> but that 90-day period, of because that's all she ended up staying. Uh, she was, I did, we didn't know and she was, how long it would be, but it ended up being about three months, and I had that opportunity to prove to my children that I was trustworthy again. And our relationship uh, rebuilt a lot during that three months. Those timing things and how they happen. It's something. 
I got a place out in the country. I take guys down there and do fist steps. Uh, Friday night, I will do my 19th. I like, I'm an engineer, I like keep track of numbers. And that ain't to brag. The 18 people before this man coming, they're all still sober. They work these steps and they place these principles in their daily lives. And they're living lives they never thought they would have. I don't have that old job anymore. I'm self-employed. I got a wood shop in my backyard that manifested itself back there. And that might sound a little crazy. I had a little to do with it, but not much. I don't have any money in it, really. I had to do a little work. That's what I wake up and do today. Out in my wood shop, like Geppetto, making a living doing that. I do a little handyman business out on the town, go help fix people's cabinets and stuff like that. Never been happier. Got this podcast I do where I get to carry this 12-step message. It's called the Spiritual Underground Podcast. I named it after my uh, home group with their permission. Uh, you can hear stories just like this one. There's... Uh, I think it's episode 194 come out the other day and I've had some 30,000 downloads of people listening to these stories. I've had emails from all over the country and as far away as one of them was from Africa, somebody was touched by listening to that podcast. And you know, that ain't me. Or maybe it is. You know, I'll say I'm a different guy today. But I really do believe today that period in there was the different guy. That guy that was breaking in houses, shitting on his kids' lives. That was the different guy. What I believe today is I'm who I'm supposed to be. And I think that's what the 12 steps does for you. That little kid that was innocent, look around, you all know him. Happy, joyous, and free, right? They want something, they let you know about it. They're not afraid to ask. I'm not afraid to ask anymore either. I think that's what happens when we do this. Is we, 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 like I said earlier, our spirits get stepped on as we grow up, and we pick up stuff. And some people don't pick up anything. I'm part of a 12 co-founder of a 12-step program here in Louisville called 12-step recover, 12-step spiritual recovery. We call it TSSR, where we hand these 12-step tools to people who are not addicts and alcoholics. If they're there, they can come get it too. We have some of those. But I've had the opportunity to sponsor some people through these 12 steps that don't have the problems that we got. And their lives get better too. TSSR, want to know any more about it? Uh, please contact me. That guy hit me with a ball bat. <laughs> Just, I'm going to go through this fast. My daughter's grandmother molested her. Grandfather molested her while I was sober. Had I not been sober, I wouldn't have the tools to deal with that. This is kind of funny, but little girls who have bad things happen to them get what they want. She wanted a puppy. She got this puppy. I didn't want a puppy. I didn't want a dog. My doorbell rings one day. And the girl standing outside my window was the girl that was being told to call 911. And I'm looking at her thinking, what does she want? She, and uh, I'm like, do you remember who I am? And she, I looked out, she had a dog on a leash, and she said, can my dog play with your dog? And I said, yeah, you can bring him over anytime you want to. I got a big fenced-in yard anytime you want to. So that dog would be in my backyard a lot. It's really good for this dog and my daughters. They wear each other out. One day I'm sitting on my back porch. I come in from doing some handyman work. I got some rallies or something. I'm sitting on the back porch. It's a really nice day. It's like October. And uh, I hear the gate rattle, and I expect to look over and see the girl with the dog. And I look over. It's a dude that used to have a ball bat. They still lived over there, and he was bringing the dog over. And I knew what was happening right that moment. And I stood up and said, David. And he was like, started to like leave. And I said, hang on a minute. I need to talk to you. And I stood across that fence and did my amends with that man. And I don't know how all that shit works. How a little girl gets hurt, gets a dog, 
dog ends up being the reason why I get to patch this thing up with this man. And he got to get off the hook too, because remember I told you about that bucket of glass? He comes straight to my house and busts the shit out of everything I had. And he was worried about getting in trouble for it. <laughs> and he told me that over that fence in him and I. <laughs> him and I both shed tears patching that fucking thing up. And those are miracles. I'll end with that. Thank you all. My name is Dan Reeves. I'm an alcoholic.